Welcome to the Renovatio podcast. Today, I am delighted to have Dr. Len E. Goodman speaking to me. For those of you who are not already familiar with Dr. Goodman, he is an eminent scholar and Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Philosophy and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. He's also written numerous books on metaphysics and ethics from both the Jewish and Islamic philosophical traditions, including a translation and philosophical commentary of Ibn Tufail's philosophical novel, Hai Ibn Yaqzan. Dr. Goodman has also written an essay for the latest print edition of Renovatio, which is entitled Alchemy, Mythology and Artificial Intelligence. For those of you who haven't read this article, I uh, absolutely recommend. We'll be talking a lot about the themes here, but it's a, it's a really insightful piece, which is also now up online. So do, do read that. Dr. Goodman, I am delighted to be speaking to you today. And this is a really fascinating piece of yours, especially pertinent to these very pressing issues at the moment of artificial intelligence. I'm not sure if you've had much experience yet of students using artificial intelligence in your role as a professor. <laughs> no, I, I haven't. People, people worry about it because it can be designed to be hard to detect, you know, and if you wanted to write something in a given style or something that looks like it was written by a sophomore in college or something like that, that I, I gather it can do it. But one, one thing that I do as a professor is I try to assign topics that are not sort of standard. And that will protect the student and the professor from potted papers. But of course, with artificial intelligence, it, it goes much further because it can invent and, and, and pull together things that don't look like they're related and manufacture some kind of way of relating them. So it is a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the program today is to talk about how actually this is something with a very fascinating historical precedent, this desire to create some superhuman intelligence. So I think without without further ado, I'll, I'll introduce some of the ideas that you discuss in the article, and then we'll we'll go into go go a bit deeper. So in this article in the Renovatio print edition, you make a really fascinating comparison between alchemy, which we can define broadly as the medieval and Renaissance art of transforming matter, uh, and you speak especially about a particular kind of alchemy that involved imbuing spirits or intelligences into man-made forms. You compare that with modern technology uh, and specifically with artificial intelligence. So really, I'm hoping we can talk about this comparison in, in depth. But I think to begin, it might be helpful if we can define some of these key ideas. So artificial intelligence, I think we probably all, all know what, what that is, but, it, but it's helpful if you could, could speak a bit about, about how you understand artificial intelligence, uh, and particularly how it relates to this idea of transhumanism. Uh, in the article, you, you mentioned transhumanism, you also mentioned anti-humanism, but broadly, what is transhumanism and what does artificial intelligence have to do with it? Well, transhumanism is, is the idea that humans are just a stage in the evolution of life, and maybe some people would like to get beyond the the biological locus of life and, and to think about, well, I think they're attracted by the idea, for example, of downloading one's one's identity into a computer program 
and thereby attaining a kind of immortality. I'm very suspicious of that idea, but there are people who are excited about it. You know, years ago, people used to think that if they froze the bodies at just the right temperature, they could be awakened, you know, a thousand years from now when there's a cure for all the diseases that they might have worried about. And instead of that cryobiological notion, uh, what has become kind of faddish now is, is the idea that, okay, uh, a human being is just uh, a kind of uh, software uh, programmed into the brain. There are uh, well-known philosophers who, who hold such a view. So the idea would be uh, one of sustaining one's identity they're not interested in the machine. They're interested in the fact that the, that the mind is, is, is software and one's identity could be sustained after the demise of one's body. I think that's something of an illusion fueled by wishful thinking uh, about immortality. I think, as often happens with self-deceptions of that kind, you have to go back to the basic premise. I'm not convinced that Human beings are really systems of software. We are embodied, and our embodiment is an important aspect of who and what we are. Uh, and uh, it, it helps give us a sense of self and location and relation to other individuals where uh, we, we think of the self as something very spiritual. We should forget its location in, in the body and its use of the body, that, that the, the, the soul is what makes a body alive. It's what makes the difference between a living human being and a, and a corpse. I think that sundering that relationship is not as easy as imagination might wishfully suppose. You mentioned posthumanism or something like that. That's a little more than a delusion. That's a kind of a worrisome idea. You've probably seen people promoting the idea, oh, there are, there are too many human beings on Earth, and, and we should diminish the human population of this planet from 8 billion to 1 billion. Somehow we're, we're supposed to accept the idea of some kind of massive genocide that would like, look, make the genocides of the 20th century pale by comparison. And this is supposed to be in the interest of ecology or, or saving the planet, save the planet for the cockroaches, uh, etc. That's an apocalyptic sort of mythology. I think one of the things that you can learn if you, if you study the history of various mythologies is that they always involve a, a rather unwholesome mix of desire and fear, illusions about an apocalypse. They've got it coming to them, so we'll get rid of them and, 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 and save ourselves. Uh, or uh, maybe in a, in a more even more unwholesome version, we've all got it coming to us. Uh, we should just as soon get off the planet and leave it, leave it to the other creatures. There, there's there's romantic self-deceptions involving involving such notions, but there are always people to whom that kind of thing is appealing. 
Yes, well, I mean, I think you you do raise raise an important point that often transhumanism does seem to become quite anti-humanist or even anti anti-human, and I think that that's possibly because well, in the beginning you have people like Francis Bacon who are in a sense kind of anticipating this modern desire to augment human life through technology. But, but with Bacon, he's still rooted in a very Christian idea of, of human nature, ultimately. Whereas I think when you, when you lose that and you lose the idea of a divinely ordained creation, and you instead start refashioning human nature and even biology according to some other image, you know, not, not God's image, but some other ideal, that's when it can become actually deeply, deeply anti-human and you're, you're rewiring yeah. human nature in a way that's often quite harmful. I think in your article, you describe some of the people that are taking this transhumanist vision to an extreme. And, and as, as you, you just said there, they're trying to, to upload yeah. their lives, their identities into this seemingly transcendent software. And you actually say in the article that they're trying to seek eternal life through yes. through computer software yes, which is that, about, that is that is the attraction yeah exactly and that's about as, as transhumanist as it gets and you use a, a great phrase to describe those kinds of people and that is science fantasists uh, and by science fantasists uh, you seem to be talking about the silicon valley type type of, of thinkers you mentioned ray kurzweil i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly he's very interesting because he he's he talks a lot about this idea of singularity, this idea of uploading all human consciousness into this singular free-floating entity, which, which certainly has this veneer of a, of a kind of otherworldly, almost a kind of utopic vision. And, and certainly it is, it is very utopic, although, as you, as you point out, can also be dystopic at the same time. Yeah. So these science fantasists with these very bold visions that they have, what do you think is is motivating them? Is it, is it just simply an almost egotistical desire to live forever, or is there something something deeper to this this transhumanist? I, I think what makes it deeper is the ambivalence that I was referring to. Yeah, they 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 do market it as a way of enabling the individual to live forever. Well, when you talk about that kind of oneness, then you get into well, it's not an individual anymore. You 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 lost. Do you remember Huxley in Brave New World? They had a little chant that they would do: "Orgy Porgy, Ford and Fun, Kiss the Girls and Make Us One." Ford, what was the mythological god of of that? You know, or as he sometimes called himself Freud, if you remember Brave New World. The idea is. Uh, at once the, the notion of individuality and then coupled with that, the idea of losing one's individuality and joining some kind of greater identity in which one would be lost. As you know, that has medieval precedence. It has ancient precedence. But, but the thing to watch out for is the ambivalence about it that that we're supposed to want this and be afraid of it at the same time. And playing upon that ambivalence is part of the unwholesomeness of the, uh, of the dream. Many dreams have an unwholesome side to it, which, uh, aren't always readily admitted. I think 
I think if, if one, if one thinks about what humanism really has to offer is the value of the individual, the, the sanctity, if you will, of the individual as an individual, as the way Kant put it as a, an end in oneself rather than a means to some other end, which is supposedly higher and better and deeper. And I think what's important about the humanistic valuation of individuality is that there's a kind of recognition there that our genes make us unique. Our experience makes us unique. One of the, one of the great contributions of Avicenna, one of the Muslim philosophers that I have studied and written about, he thought that there was a difficulty in the notion, the classical philosophical notion, that what individuates persons, or anything really, is their embodiment. You and I are different because we inhabit different bodies. And that's true. That's, that's, you know, it's been demonstrated that the likelihood of, of two individuals being identical is, you know, astronomical. It, it, it can't happen. But, but that's just the genes. Then you have to start with the experience. And the experience, even if you have twins, even if you have identical twins where the genes start out the same, uh, even in the womb, they're already beginning to be, to be different. Think of the biblical Jacob and Esau, uh, uh, different personalities, uh, right, uh, even before the get-go, even before the moment of birth. And the way we appropriate our experience and form our own identities out of that combination of nature and nurture, what we make of ourselves spontaneously. I think the, the scriptural idea, biblical idea, that we are all unique and that that uniqueness is, is something special or something precious and something holy is good. But what Avicenna contributes, very interesting. Avicenna thinks it's not just my body that makes me unique. It's my experience. It's my self-awareness. So he has this famous thought experiment called the floating man. Some people translate it as the flying man. It doesn't matter whether he's floating or flying, but, but imagine yourself, he says, up there among the spheres, no sensory contact, whatever. You'd still be aware of yourself. And that self-awareness makes you a unique individual, even without the presupposition that you have a body because you're not getting any input from the body. He imagines your, your, your eyes are closed and your fingers are not in contact with each other. You can't pinch, your, pinch yourself to see if you're dreaming. But that idea that we are individuated by our self-consciousness is very precious. And that's, that's something worth preserving. I think when the transhumanists talk about all getting amalgamated, that's part of what they're missing. And part of what they're doing is, is there's an element of self-loathing that enters into what they're saying. That's where the ambivalence comes in. They realize their uniqueness and they think that their uniqueness amounts to a set of flaws and deficits and they want to get past that and join the larger whole. Being amalgamated is not fulfilling you as a person. Becoming who you are is what's fulfilling of your identity as a person.
that's a, that's such an interesting point, and I, I'm really glad that you've you've gone into that really very metaphysical idea actually about what is the relationship between the unity of of truth ultimately and the differentiation of, of different people, and, and as you say, the, the 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 inevitability of of individuation. As I understand it, I think the difference between maybe how you and I sort of see truth, not to sort of make it make an assumption, but I, I suppose from a broadly, I guess it's a you know Neoplatonic idea, but but also has a place in the Abrahamic traditions, is the idea that that truth is is singular. Yes, there is a, a universality. Uh, of of truth, um, but that different people come to truth in different ways. Right, musicians and painters, and uh, you know, they they see different aspects of it. I, I once heard a wonderful lecture by the historian of physics Shmuel Sembrsky, who pointed out, since you mentioned the Neoplatonic tradition in Greek philosophy in general, the individual was not highly valued as an individual. Oh, it is an important source of our humanism. But what was individual was regarded as idiosyncratic, accidental. These are the things that have happened to you. And he pointed out in his lecture that in the Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition, you get the idea of the individual being valuable in himself, in herself. That identity is is very, very important. There's a passage in the Mishnah, the, the great ancient code of Jewish law, where they talk about the warnings, the cautions that are given to witnesses in a capital case. This is is a very serious business, and the witnesses have to be warned that when you're trying someone for a capital crime, you've got to be very careful about your testimony. One point that they make is that when Cain killed Abel, God says to Cain, your bloods are screaming to me. You won't see this in every translation, but because they, they ironed it out. But, but the Hebrew says that mean your bloods, not plural. And of course, the question arises, why does it use the plural? Uh, one person was killed. Aha. Uh-huh. But all of his potential offspring died with him. They never will exist. So that futurity representing his future life and his future progeny. That's why it says, and this is taken up in the Islamic tradition as well, as hadith to this effect, whoever kills a human being who was ever responsible for the death of a human being is as if he had killed the world. And that's predicated on this idea that, that Cain's progeny, Cain's life had a universal value. Then they say another thing. They say, when an ordinary flesh and blood mark coins money. Every coin comes out identical. But the Holy One, blessed be he, when he creates individuals, the die is the same. It's Adam, right? We're all in the the same image of Adam. But every individual is different. And what Sambrisky pointed out was that that's not regarded as idiosyncrasy. That's regarded as something precious and universal and worth preserving. And you don't preserve it, I, uh, to get back to our transhumanist uh, thinking, you don't preserve it by freezing yourself or downloading yourself. You preserve it by living a life that's worth living and discovering who you are and where that facet of truth that you're looking for really, really lies. 
Yeah, well, well, so I think I think the essential difference between this pre-modern idea is that the uniqueness and the the inevitability of particularity and difference is actually necessary for reaching truth. And so, even though we are all different, we are, I guess, emanating from a universal truth, and and those things aren't at odds with each other. But I right. think with the transhumanist idea, you go from this this kind of top-down view of unity and multiplicity to the attempt to create a kind of artificial unity uh, or singularity. So they believe that you don't need those differences to get to truth. It's better to just erase differences and then we can have this this singularity. I mean, that really is the word that's being used by people like her as well and the transhumanists. So I think this, this danger of singularity, dangerous in two senses, one that it erases God-given difference and uniqueness, but also dangerous in that it doesn't actually help us to reach truth. It will simply flatten those necessary, those necessary differences, which actually through our own experiences are really what, what, lead, what lead us to those, to those divine ideas. I think it's that danger, isn't it, of, of an artificial singularity, which really goes against creation, as, as you've described. Yeah. I don't yeah. have any more, a couple more words well, on I, that. And then it would be I, I, one, well, I think you made a very good point. Uh, one, one thing I would add to that is that the source of this difficulty is the reductionism that they started from. Look at the initial premise. All you are is a program. You're the software, and this body is is just the hardware. That kind of reductionism is akin to the old reductionism, where they said that all you are is your body, and Daniel Dennis' notion that the the mind is a is a brain infested by memes and and so forth. That reductionism, I put it to you. What I used to say about machine intelligence was that all the machine can do is play algorithms, it can it can execute algorithms. I have to add to that now, since these learning machines, these these artificial intelligence machines, don't just play algorithms, they write algorithms. But I submit to you that they're not creative. And the reason for that is that they absorb lots of information that's fed into them, uh, information of various qualities, and you know, some of it's not so good. Information is not always true. I value your repeated recurring to the idea of truth because those data that are fed into the machine or that the machine feeds in itself with uh, are of varying quality. Some of them are true, some of them not so true, some of them not so nuanced. In human creativity, we go beyond the given. That's the remarkable thing. That's one of the ways in which we can be said to be created in the image of God, because because God creates from nothing, and we create, you know, with with a starting point, but we go beyond what was given, and that's something that the machines still can't do. I think partly what makes human beings distinctive in that way is that we have that individuality, which enables us to to add a little bit of ourselves. So, you know, you can you can build a machine there. You and I can't build it, but those guys can build a machine that will imitate the style of Shakespeare or the style of Milton or the style of Beethoven or the style of Picasso. They can build a machine that will imitate it, but they can't build a machine that will be creative in the way that 
Beethoven or Mozart or Shakespeare or any of them really was because they're still going to be just processing vast amounts of, of, of data and not anything unique or distinctive that a human being can do. Absolutely. Very, very well said. And, and, you, and you say as much in the article. I'm just going to read a quote, which I think very succinctly summarizes this, this important point you're making, which is that um, a machine's values, if it had any, would reflect what was programmed into it. Serving the designer's end of some further function, such as self-perpetuation, or perhaps propagating more machines. That is not autonomy. Autonomy in the human case involves the projection and even critique of values of one's own. So I think this idea that you you touch on here, uh, particularly this idea of self-perpetuation, uh, is incredibly pertinent. I'm thinking particularly of chat GPT and, and other kinds of generative AI, because as you say, chat GPT, it can only perpetuate or echo or mirror or ramify what you put into it. And so as a result, it tends to be if you, if you ask it something generic, it tends to just be an agglomeration of things that have already been said. And, and as a result, it doesn't have any personal flair or idiolect. Uh, I, think, I think this is one of the things which is most noticeable, actually, about ChatGPT text, is that when you read work by any author, you start to notice little sayings they have or, or mannerisms, even more so when you're talking to people in person. They, they may use certain hand gestures or, or tonalities or, or other kind of paralinguistic features. Whereas with, with AI, it, it can't come up with those particularities for itself. It, it simply just echoes or tries to kind of amalgamate a mass of different people's styles and tonalities, which really creates something very dry and, and very bland. And, and as you say, not really thinking in and of itself or, or autonomous. So I think that's a very distinctive feature and, and also just attests, doesn't it, to this idea that we're talking about, about the, the artificial singularity and, and flattening of, of difference. So I think that's a, a, very, a very important point. Nonetheless, though, people have been trying to create autonomous intelligences for quite some time. And, and I didn't realize the, the, uh, the extent of that until reading your, your piece. Uh, and something that's so fascinating about this piece is how you trace these transhumanist impulses really to as early as the, the, the Middle Ages. And I mean, even going back to Neoplatonic um, ideas. So if it's all right, I'd quite like to talk, talk a bit about those and some of these, these things you're talking about. So in the piece, you say that in the Middle Ages, particularly, and of course, the Renaissance, uh, where you get a lot of these Faustian ideas really coming to the surface, alchemy appealed to people as a way of sharing in divine creativity by shifting forms, you say, into matter. And you point out that this is derived from Neoplatonic and, and in many cases quite pagan theories about imbuing spirits into physical objects. So one example you give of this is Bethel's or, or amulets. So the idea that you can imbue a stone or a gemstone with a certain kind of spirit or, or, or intelligence even. And then you, you get a bit more specific and you talk about this very curious alchemical idea of the homunculus. So that's an artificial man. The idea that if you set up an object in such a way and you perform the right 
ritual onto it, whether that's by actually placing human flesh or, or even sperm. You mentioned one particularly detailed example given by the Muslim alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan. And this really does sound like an early attempt at artificial intelligence because you're creating this object and you're trying to imbue it with 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 this this, this kind of this kind of intelligence or, or spirit. Could you talk a, a bit more about that and, and particularly Jabir ibn Hayyan's example of the homunculus, of the homunculus? What what is that? How does it how does it anticipate transhumanism? If you if you really want to start at the beginning, you have to go back to the effort to create a god. And if you understand that background, you'll see where some of that ambivalence that we noted in the transhuman movement and the posthuman movement and all that come from, because it's the same ambivalence, same ambivalence that gives rise to disaster movies and air crash movies and so forth. That is, people are not always very comfortable with themselves and often even less comfortable with each other. So, start with the battles. When people used to make gods, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah were very uh, prone to ridicule them. Here's this piece of wood, you know. You grew this tree. You chopped it down. You took some of the wood for fire to cook your dinner and some of the wood you, 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 you scribed and carved and and, and made it into the figure of a man, and 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 now you're going to bind down to it and 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 say, save me, make my life better, make things turn out right. And you know very well that you made this thing. Well, the pagan response to that was, it's not just the piece of wood. The piece of wood can be sanctified by appropriate rituals, which will invoke the god and get the god to dwell in that piece of wood, and it's not that the wood will have those powers, but that the God will be there and we can appeal to the God. So it's not just symbolic, it's not not just like veneration of images or icons, it's actually inhabited by that being. Now that idea, semi-secularized, becomes the basis of those Neoplatonic thoughts Neoplatonic rationalizations of image worship, idol worship, and so forth, because these were old traditions and traditions die hard. There were sophisticated philosophers in late antiquity who could criticize icons, and there were equally sophisticated philosophers who could rationalize it and say, well, of course, we don't think that that's God. We, we think that that's an emissary inhabiting this piece of wood. Now, that idea, again, semi-secularized, becomes the basis of what alchemists considered the magnum opus. And this is where great alchemists like Jabir Hayyan, and Jabir Hayyan is probably a, a portmanteau name for a few people whose works were collected and, and ascribed to him, Omar Khayyam, for example, we, we think the quatrains of Omar Khayyam were probably written by different people and, and collected because they conveyed the same spirit, the cynical spirit of Omar Khayyam, who was not a tent maker, of course, but a mathematician. They, magnum opus of alchemy was not transforming base metals into gold. That was 
considered by serious alchemists like Jabir and those who travel under his name, that was considered elementary. That was basic, beginner stuff. Because, because in Neoplatonism, you have your basic matter, and a matter always has to have a form, and the trick to transformation was to, was to give that matter a new form. So, so if you could, if you could turn base metal into gold, that means taking the, the form of gold and somehow transferring it into this otherwise unimpressive piece of lead or tin. That was beginner stuff because the magnum opus, the great work of alchemy, was the creation of a living being. And there were all kinds of legends and wishes that gave rise to legends and stories. I guess the most familiar such story is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where Dr. Frankenstein is, is able to create an artificial human being. The homunculus that some of the ancient Talmudic sources were interested in, and the homunculus that Jabir ibn Hayyan was interested in, and they have all recipes of what you have to do to concoct this artificial human being. That was a matter of taking, invoking a human spirit to dwell in this clay that would animate it and give it, make it, make itself moving and autonomous and so forth. Not just an autonomous car, but an autonomous human-like being. And of course, the, the mythological impulses that produced that desire and those legends about what an artificial human being could be, uh, come along with it. So these artificial beings have superhuman powers, and there's always some kind of deficit as well. They may be strong, but they're kind of dumb, or they may be, or they, they may be insightful, but only about certain things. That was the, the genesis of vast numbers of legend. You mentioned the rabbinic legendary material about golems and how they could be helpful, but also hurtful. And one of the things in some of the legends about golems, they would, they would have, they would have the three Hebrew letters, Aleph, Mem, Tuf, which are the first, middle, and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, spells out emet, which means truth. Sometimes it said, Hashem Elohim Emet, the Lord God is truth, written on the forehead. Once the golem has served its purpose, or when it's sort of played out, it will erase the Aleph, which is the first letter of the alphabet, and the, also the symbol of God, because it's the number one in numerology. Then it would say, the Lord God is mate is dead. And when he did that, he would die. The golem would die. They had various uses, these, these legendary creatures. They, in legend, they would be helpful or hurtful. And typically, the help and the hurt went hand in hand and often got out of hand. Now, we know this from Goethe's version 
popularized by Walt Disney as uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. The, the Sorcerer's Apprentice isn't sophisticated like his master. He can get the broom to do his chores for him, but he doesn't know how to get it to stop. Everybody, everybody knows Mickey Mouse's version of that. The little 